0: By NaturopathicEarth.com, here is certified health coach A. Gregory Luna with Confessions of an Obese Child. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is A. Gregory Luna with the Gregory. Another edition of Confessions of an Obese Child. Uh, you can find me at NaturopathicEarth.com. www.naturopathicEarth.com. Dot com. I am the co-founder, I'm a certified health coach, and a formerly obese child, hence the podcast. I hope you've been doing well. Thank you so much for coming back. I would appreciate it, of course, if you post some reviews or some comments or let people know about it who've had similar issues growing up overweight. I, I try to fi- make this show kind of a mixture of some humor and, of course, some, some poignant talk about things that happened to us or happened to me when I was younger. So, and of course, I mix in the pop culture and the politics. And I know, I know some of you might be a little turned off on my politics. I am, as a whole, kind of libertarian in my bent. When I was younger, I was a rabid socialist. I was actually part of the Socialist Workers' Party when I was in college, <laughs> back in the 90s. And the Socialist Workers' Party really reached its heyday back in the 1930s, but they were still active in the 90s on a small level. And we used to go in, and at least where I went to school in San Antonio, we'd go in and infiltrate Republican Party meetings, and try to be like a agitator. But uh, as the older I got, I, I just there's an old saying that I think that is a, ascribed to Mark Twain: is that those who are young and not liberal are heartless, and those who are old and not conservative are brainless. And I just think the older you get, you just naturally become conservative. My parents were both Kennedy liberals, meaning they were fiscal, uh, fiscally liberal, but socially conservative. Back in the '60s, the Democratic Party, you know, didn't embrace abortion and gay rights and and transgenderism and all these things. You know, they didn't really ex- exist as issues back then. So, um, you know, I think there is a, a, a correlation between whether or not you are nerdy or an outcast or a misfit and what party you adhere to. Typically, the outcast will adhere, of course, to the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party represents itself as the party of the outcast, the minority, the poor, right? So if you always see yourself not in the in crowd, of course you're going to identify more with that party. And typically the conservative party Republican Party is going to be representative of the establishment, the clique, the elite, the popular kids, and so forth. So you kind of see that correlation. I also saw a fascinating study on religion. It said that most people who have really good relationships with their father tend to be religious still. And I'm not saying an established religion, it could be spirituality, or you could belong to a church or a mega church or a traditional church like the Catholic church that I'm in. But it said that those who have an estrangement with their father. When they're younger, due to whatever, they, they tend not to be religious, and I think that's fascinating, right? You think about your relationship with your father, your biological father, correlates to your relationship with your spiritual father. So I think that's fascinating as well. There was another study I saw on voting patterns and uh, political ideology so in church in churches. So it said that people who go to church weekly. Tend to vote Republican. And people who don't, like uh, kind of the fallen away Christians or the just the avowed atheists, tend to vote liberal. So if you are a churchgoer, you're typically going to be a uh, conservative or part of the Republican Party. So let's start. Confessions of an obese child, number 16. You can find me on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. At Naturopath Earth. Confession number 16 is the cancer hospital. This is kind of a continuation from 15, which was the cancer doctor in which I talked about my father. So let's start. So I mentioned in the previous confession, my father was a world-famous pathologist. He was a cancer doctor. He had written hundreds of articles. He was the head of continental pathological societies, European, South American he traveled the world. He gave lectures. He's, he's in textbooks. He's a very famous pathologist. Now, he worked at a cancer hospital, and he was in charge of the morgue there for about 40 years, quite a long time. So he ran the Department of Pathology, and he also ran the morgue. Now, he did some autopsies on very famous people. Now, a lot of them he couldn't tell me because he said that it was like top secret CIA stuff. I think he was just saying that kind of stuff to you know, make me think of him as an even bigger legend that he was. But he did tell me that he did the autopsy on Jack Ruby. Any of you know who that was? That was the man, the Dallas nightclub owner, who shot Lee Harvey Oswald. A couple of days after Oswald, of course, shot Kennedy. Probably Ruby went to prison and died of cancer. So he told me he did some other big wig Hollywood celebrities of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but he couldn't tell me uh, who they were. So my father loved his children nearly as much as he loved medicine. He was a medicine junkie, no doubt about it. But, I mean, that's the way it should be, right? You should love your job to the point where you think about it all the time and you just adore it. You know, you don't want to wake up and hate your job like, oh, I have to go to work. Sometimes I feel like that about teaching, but most days I like being around the youth. They keep you young. You get to impart knowledge, even if they don't always listen to you, which in many cases my kids don't. You know, I guess if you talk about the same stuff about naturopathy and nutrition, you know, they just kind of tune you out, especially when they're young, because they think they're immortal. But he had uh, three sons, right? Myself, my middle brother, my oldest brother, and he wanted one of us to be a doctor. And since I was the youngest and kind of the most nerdy and the least likely to ever delve into drugs or get in trouble with the ladies, the onus fell on me to carry the torch. Now, my grandfather, my mother's father was a, a doctor as well, but he was like a small town doctor in Mexico. And then my mom's sister, my aunt, was also a pathologist in another town, private practice. And so we did have doctors in the family. And I think I was primed to be the doctor. You know, I was not close to my older brother since they were much older than I was six and 10 years older than I was. I didn't have a lot of friends, and I loved to read encyclopedias. I had an insatiable love of learning, and I had a, just a really good memory, and I was really good at anatomy. So as part of the indoctrination program, like like the good old Mao and the Chinese communists used to do in the 60s, right, if you ever questioned something, they would purge you like in the Cultural Revolution, or they would send you to one of those re-education camps, and you'd come back like, I love Chairman Mao. Now, you really don't see those anymore, aside from maybe Kim Jong-un in North Korea, but you don't see those anywhere. but part of the, re, the indoctrination campaign is that my dad took me to his work on the weekends. So every weekend for about twelve years, I would go with my father. You know, we would we would leave early, early in the morning around seven a.m. We would go to a diner, of course, and eat, and I loved to eat. Sometimes we wouldn't; we'd go straight to the hospital. I would eat at the cafeteria there, but we would go on Saturdays and Sundays, and until about you know seven to noon, and it was great. It was great. Now, a cynic would probably say that he went there on the weekends just to get away from my mom. And I think that in a lot of cases, you know, parents do that. Parents, fathers do that. They go to work or they just use that as an excuse because they don't want to deal with their kids or they don't want to deal with their spouse or they just want to get away. You know, men kind of like to be alone lots of times. Or they just want to get away from a crazy household. So maybe it was that. I don't know. But he went. And he loved it. And he did work when he was there. So it's not like he didn't do any work. So I loved going to the hospital with him. It was like my lighthouse in the proverbial stormy seas. I, you know, didn't like school. I was picked on all the time. And I've mentioned in many of these podcasts how difficult it was. But going to the hospital was great. He was like a celebrity there. You know, we'd walk down the hallway and, and everyone would be like, hey, Dr. Fill in the blank. Hey, doctor. Hey, what's up? He would be like, hello. Hello, Monique. Hello, Sabrina. How are you? Hello. Hello, John. John. Yes. Oh, yes. America. They're horrible. Las Chivas. They're the best. He was just like going down the hallway and he knew everybody. And it's not like he only knew like the head of medicine. The dude knew everybody the custodians, cafeteria workers, the guard. He knew them all by their names. And that was the essence of my dad. See, my dad never had pretense. His father was a highway worker, so I think he was raised very modest. And there's a lot of people who are raised modest, but then when they get fame and celebrity, they get a big head, right, because they don't know how to deal with it because they're not really well-grounded. You all know people who are like this. But my father wasn't like that. You know, even though he became this very prestigious doctor, he still treated everybody the same. He, he knew everybody's names. And I mentioned in the previous podcast how he donated money to a lot of people that were way beneath him, people that the other doctors wouldn't even know their names or give a damn about. But my dad was like that. He never really acted the part as the world-famous doctor. You know, his, his fashion was horrible. Now, granted, when he got older, he was a little overweight, but he would wear like the same red shirt, blue pants. And since he was overweight, they used to nickname him La, the, the albondiga, which means the meatball. Because he would wear he had a big belly and he was short, you know. I'm pretty tall, I'm like six two. He's he was like maybe like five eight. So we used to joke how I was like the the milkman was my dad back in the day when we had milkmen. But he'd wear his pants underneath his big belly. So somehow you know you know a lot of guys who did that, they wear the so they can still say, I wear a size thirty-six, you know, but their belly is is over it and they the belt's underneath it. They'd be like, I wear a size thirty-six. So he would, he would do that. He always had the crappiest car. I mentioned that last time, too. He, my mom would always get the new car. And, like, every three years, they would get a new car. They would lease. They were big into leasing, typically. But he would always drive, like, the oldest car that we have. He just didn't give a damn. He was just like, whatever, I want to go to work, leave me alone. You know, I want to drink and watch soccer and fall asleep at bookstores in the mall. So I guess it was that kind of that, that Great Depression ethos that he was raised in because he was born in thirties, in the thirties. So the morgue, my father's morgue was a veritable playland for a kid. Unlike other fathers who might exhibit a more cautious approach when exposing their children to their workplace, my father reveled. He reveled in the macabre environments. Now I just, just imagine, you know, like your dad's workplace, like daddy, baby dad, son goes to work day on daddy day, daddy work day let's go to your work, daddy. And you walk in, there's saws and knives and corpses with tags on them. So literally, he'd push me into the refrigerator vaults with the cadavers. You know, you've all seen enough movies and stuff where they have their little refrigerator and they open and they, they roll out the dude. He would literally put me in there and, and close the door. And I'd be like, yeah, this is awesome. And then I'd look to my right or left and there'd be cadavers there. I, didn't, I wasn't freaked out by it. I didn't even think it was weird. He'd allow me to play with the the jars that had all the organs in them because you know they would preserve a lot of organs that were very cancerous. So I'd see like these livers and stomachs and hearts that had these gigantic tumors in them, and they keep them in bottles with formaldehyde. And I'd look at those. He would show me the power saws when I got older, and you know when I was a teenager, he would let me like hold all the knives that they use and all the the cutting apparatus. I did watch some autopsies. Uh, when when they would bring them in, it's amazing how quickly they can cut these bodies. They do this Y cut. They make like the letter Y, and they start on the collarbone, and uh, on either side and they cut down to the middle, and they just cut right down the middle of the midline of the body all the way down to the genitalia, and then from there they just extract all the organs and cut them up like they're making a salad, so they can put all the organs under a microscope because that's what pathologists do. Pathologists look at look at cells of the body under microscopes to determine. What disease they died of, typically cancer. You know, my father, cancer hospital, so it was cancer. So, <laughs> walking into his lab featuring tumor distorted organs and jars was akin to walking into a Tim Burton movie. Even a paltry amount of retrospection gives me some trepidation as to whether this altered my psyche. I really don't think it did. I mean, I knew my father's job was unique. It kind of gave me a first-hand view of disease and death that Grey's Anatomy or ER or Quincy M.D., I guess that was more of the show back in the 80s, couldn't. I don't think it turned me into a sullen child or fueled my binge eating. It just gave me a respite from the horrors of school and some one-on-one time with my dad, albeit around a bunch of dead bodies. I also remember that he had morgue assistants and they would have a little locker room and I remember going in there because I was always a snooper. I loved to just walk around and snoop. And I'd go into the locker room, I'd open the lockers, and they'd always have, like, nudie pictures in the lockers. You know, like the classy 70s ones, not, like, the the profane stuff now. And I always just always look at them and always kind of, like, giggle when I was younger and then close it. So I didn't think I should have been looking at that. So as I mentioned, I, I, I used to love to wander. You know, I would wander around, wander the mall, wander the amusement park, wander around Mexico, just walk and walk and walk. So the hospital was no different. So my dad, you know, we'd eat breakfast in the beginning. And then, um, you know, I'd just walk around, just walk around the hospital. Just, what is there? Does this hallway go to? Where does this hallway go? And so I would end up in some, like, weird places in this hospital. Just, just weird places. So, like, I remember one time I ended up, and then later on I would go back to these places. Like I went to the lab where they have all the right the rats Where they would test cancer drugs on them So you'd go in and the rats would have You know those pink creepy eyes they had But they would all have these massive tumors And it's just creepy like walking into a room Where there's like a hundred cages of tumor rats Right And then I'd go into like the radiation parts of the hospital um, They had a little video game ward up on the cancer floor Where I would go and play video games and the cancer kids weren't around. I would just go anywhere. So it was great. It was, just, it was just really great. So my dad would be like, Albert, I'm going to go and work on my slides for the conference in Djibouti. He'll go wander around. Okay, dad. So typically the first place I would go, if we hadn't eaten breakfast already, or even if we did eat breakfast, to be honest, we would typically go there and I'd get like a bunch of eggs. And then my dad would be like, Albert, go. And then I just roam around First place I'd go Right across from the chapel And I'll talk about the chapel in a second Was this big vending machine room And my dad would just give me money Or I'd steal money from the wallet And I would just sit in there And just buy ice cream sandwich After ice cream sandwich After ice cream sandwich And just sit in there And just eat i just eat and eat and eat Or because I'd go back to the cafeteria But like, again You think about it where, Where's a binge eater really gonna go? Are they gonna go to a Public Loud cafeteria, or are they going to go to a small room with a bunch of vending machines and just eat there? They're going to go to the ladder. So typically, I would just hang on, eat a bunch of junk food. And back then, they had those vending machines because they still have them now where they would sell sandwiches and burritos. You know, you'd push the button, and you'd open the little sliding door. It's very 70s. So fueled by my little breakfast binge, you know, I roamed the hospital. And on the weekends, the hospital was kind of a ghost town. It wasn't, you know, as staffed as it would be during the week, just essential staff. So as I mentioned, it was a research hospital and, and you would find a lot of just creepy places. And it was great because it was I was almost like a 16th century explorer or something. I knew that there were tunnels that would connect the different buildings because... The hospital was gigantic. It was just gigantic. And I would try to find them, and then they'd be locked half the time, or I'd get in and be all creepy and spooky. Because, again, think of like empty hospitals. It's like classic horror movie stuff, right? And you're a little kid with an imagination, you don't know what's coming around the corner. So eventually, I came across the attention of the security guards because we didn't really have like hardcore surveillance in the early 80s, but there was some. And they knew my father. You know, when he walked into the hospital, there were always security guards at the front. They'd be like, hey, doc. And so they saw, you know, the chubby kid next to him. So they weren't too worried about me, like, snooping around and going postal and killing people or, like, liberating the rats like PETA, Cookie PETA does, you know, blowing up research institutes that do... Testing on animals. I like to tell people it's like, okay, what, well, where, where do you want them to test this stuff? They got, they got to test them, right? The FDA makes them test them. Do you want it to be tested on humans first? They got to be tested on animals, all right? I mean, come on. Now we have tested stuff on humans without telling them. A lot of cases where the CIA used to dope LSD on on unsuspecting GIs to see how they would react, and they'd videotape them. Um, there is uh the the study where they injected plutonium into pregnant women to see how it affect the babies. I mean, even the atomic bomb, when they dropped the atomic bomb, they would tell the GIs, okay, start walking into the mushroom cloud, (laughs) and then we're going to study you later on, you know. So it's just crazy stuff that they would do, totally crazy stuff. But I I got really close with the security guards. I knew all their names, and they'd let me walk around you know, walk the beat with them, and really they didn't have a beat. I mean, what's going on at Cancer Hospital? So I had to pretty much just sit in the front with them and just talk, you know. I loved talking to adults. That was my thing. And I'm, they just seem less judgmental, and I think they just like talking to a precocious kid. And I was pretty precocious back then. It's older than my age or wiser than my age. Another thing I do: I walk through the cancer ward, especially up on the floors where they had the kid cancer patients. That was just very sad. I mean, I you know going back to the big and tall store, seeing fat kids, seeing cancer kids probably was even more depressing because you know these kids didn't have their hair really skinny on the verge of death a lot of them would die you know they'd have kidney kidney cancer leukemia you know the big kid the big kid cancer killers and you know I thought well my life's pretty lousy with all the ridicule and stuff and I knew I'd have a probably a, eventually a shorter lifespan if I didn't lose my weight but at least I had a life to live and the potential of losing my weight and a lot of these cancer kids didn't have that luxury you know I'd really say, like, if you have a real self-centered, narcissistic, princessy kind of kid, is like, oh, my God, my life is horrible. My iPad's not working. Why don't you have him take a little walk through a cancer hospital or have him do some volunteer work or just dump him in the poor part of town <laughs> and say, I'm going to come back in 12 hours. You figure out what you're going to do. Maybe that'll give them some perspective. I don't know. So they, they don't suffer from their affluenza you know it's like first world problems you ever heard that term first world problems it's like you things that that we think we are that are very difficult in our life it's like come on most of the world is suffering from pestilence and starvation and rape they don't have central heating you know they live next to their cow for Christ's sake and they poop in the same lake where someone's drawing water on the other side you know and you wonder how we got cholera so Another thing I did was on Sundays I'd be an altar boy. You know they had a chapel at this at the church or at the hospital, and it was a non-denominational chapel. But I, I distinctly remember there being a lot of Catholic priests there. They would have like a hospital ministry, right? And they still have it at a lot of hospitals now. But nowadays they just call in the Protestant ministers or the Catholic priest to do what they need to do. But back then they didn't. They actually had a chapel and it was serviced by priests and Protestant ministers. So I went over there, and it was right across from that vending machine place. And I was a good Catholic kid. You know, I liked church. I, I, I never remember a time in my life where I didn't go to Mass. I liked going to church weekly, even in college. I never really rebelled. I really liked it. So I went over there, and I went to Mass, and I talked to the priest because they kept seeing me there. And the other people that would go to Mass, are like cancer cancer victims, you know, kids or adults and then their families. And I just loved hanging out with the priests, and I just like all the pageantry of the mass. You know, they put on the vestments and the gold chalices and the rosaries and the incense, all that stuff I still love. I just think it was great. So they let me help out. I would video record a lot of the masses because they would put those on a television station that'd be at the cancer hospital. So if you're too sick to... Uh, go down to the church, you could watch it on TV. So I was in charge of recording, and I remember I'd be all cool, like panning and doing zoom in and zoom out on the on the altar and all this, like I was like Martin Scorsese or something like that. Yeah, little David Fincher. So I would do that, and that was great. I really loved that. So overall, I had great memories of the cancer hospital, I really thought I wanted to do a doctor. Eventually, I stopped going there because, well, uh, you know, I graduated from high school and then I had to go to college and I went to college in San Antonio. Now, at the time, in high school, and I was, you know, properly nurtured or, you know, if you want to be this cynic, uh, indoctrinated by my father to be a doctor, and I had a firm desire to be a doctor, and I explicitly, ex- explicitly expressed that interest to my dad. And so I, I, inter- I chose a school that had a good pre-med co- program. But internally, I worried that I didn't have the brains, and most importantly, the confidence to do it. And a lot of this stems from being overweight, of course. I inevitably broke my father's heart. I let my fears and insecurities get the best of me, for on my first day of college, I changed my major from pre med to undecided humanities. Undecided humanities. Yeah, those two words almost killed my father fifteen years before his actual aortic dissection, which actually ended up killing him. And see, the thing is that, like, I, I look back and it was a humongous mistake because I loved geography and history, but my dad would always say, you know, I learned. You can't make a living off of your hobbies. You'll have to get a job in something that you that pays the, live, that pays the bills. And I'd be like, whatever. So I was away from him. And deep down, I thought I was scared. And I changed majors. And what he should have done, what he should have done would, would be like, Albert, unless you change majors, I am not paying for college. Because I went to a private school. I'll be not that good of a, a private school. But it was a private school. And if you would have said that, I would have been like, okay, I'm pre-med again. But again, my parents never really they never really punished us, grounded us. They didn't I think they just wanted to please us. I don't know what it was, but no, in retrospect, I wish she would have done that because my road has been very circuitous in terms of finding a career and whatnot. And I think if had I stuck it through, my life would have been infinite infinitely infinitesimally significantly, undubitably different. Okay, I can't come up with the word I'm thinking of. So, but I did it. And he tried to convince me to change my mind, but I said, you yeah, know, whatever, Dad. And I wasn't so much scared of the academic river rigor of becoming a doctor. It was more the people I had to encounter. And, and again, this is through the 18-year-old, just recently thin guy. You know, I lost my wife my junior year in high school. In my mind, I thought I'm going to have to be around the same people who maligned and tortured me for years, and they were going into pre-med. I looked at all the pre-med people, and they all looked like good-looking, popular people. Now, of course, not everybody who goes and becomes a doctor is good-looking. I mean, I I take my students to the hospital, and I'm walking around the hospital. A lot the doctors are bigger nerds than I was. But at the time, I think I was just rationalizing because I lacked the confidence. I lacked the confidence. And eventually you rationalize every act, you know, everything that you do in your life, you can rationalize it as being the right thing to do or the justification for doing it. And this is something later on I did 10 years later when I went to get my PhD in in history. And I talked about this in The Invisible Student when I was having the panic attacks in graduate school, well after I lost my weight, that I didn't talk in class And I would always be sweating and I'd have to leave because in my mind, I I felt like I didn't belong there. But if anybody looked at me or heard me talk, because I am pretty articulate, they would say that I belonged. But it, it really doesn't matter what other people think, right? You can't escape the prison of your mind. You can't detach your mind from you. So in my mind, I thought I didn't fit in. and Just like here, in my mind, I was scared. And I thought, well, I know history and geography. If I switched to undecided humanities and I eventually switched to international relations, I would take a lot of history and geography. And I was very good at that. But I I was very good at medicine, too. So, even now I regret it. Even now I regret it. And do I regret leaving the PhD program 10 years later? I don't know. I don't know. I I think that I was more equipped to be in medicine, as is the fact that I'm a medical teacher now. You know, I teach anatomy and nutrition and, and all those things. I think I was meant to be in medicine. So we want to say that God has a plan for us when we F up, right? God has a plan. Oh, Johnny, there's a reason why there was a car that just ran over your mother. God wants your mother to be with them. We, we rationalize everything, right? We can't handle the fact that either A, God's a D-bag, I don't think that God, knock on wood, don't strike me down, right? The classic view of God, right? See, back in the day, we had that awesome view of God. And when I mean awesome, I don't mean like, you're awesome, God. It was more like, ah, oh, you'd, fr- you'd be afraid of him. God was like the just God, right? And like, if you're caught masturbating, he's going to strike you down. And you're going to go blind. You know, we had that kind of scary view of God. So <laughs> I still have that So. God, I'm not saying that. So if somebody gets run uh, run over, I'm not going to say God's a D-bag, right? But in some ways, we kind of still have a childish view of God. You know, we kind of live in fear of Him. Not everybody. Some of you have been liberated, and you're atheists or agnostic, and I don't believe in that hocus-pocus stuff. And so you're like, God's nothing. I would say, if anything, don't become an atheist, because what happens if you're wrong? Hedge your bets, right? Why don't you be like a mild-mannered... Make a churchy and Protestant who believes that they're going to be once saved, always saved, and still live a dissolute life because you think you're going to go to heaven. Or better, better yeah, of course, you're going to be raptured before you go to heaven. So it's even better, right? I can just say, oh, Jesus Christ, is my Lord and Savior. Oh, what? I'm not going to have to be tortured here by the Antichrist and his minions for seven years because good people are going to be taken up to heaven. And all you sinner, crappy atheists are going to have to stay behind and get, you know, killed by all the demons, and the Antichrist and the false prophet, all that. I just, I just love this storyline. Like, it, it just makes me laugh so much. Uh, but it's, it's, kind of, it's, it just kind of reminds me of that. But um, I don't know. I just totally went off topic and don't remember. Oh yeah, atheist. So yeah, I have a kind of an awesome view of God. You know, I, I, I do pray to God every night that God don't kill me today because I have stain of mortal sin on me, and if I died right now, I would go to hell. And I know a lot of you probably think, oh my God, Gregory, grow up, but. It's Catholic dogma, and again, going back to now, I remember, hedge your bets. I'd rather hedge my bets and think that God exists and try to adhere to his commandments and the teachings of the church as best as I can, and be wrong, and just end up being wormwood and maggot wood, right? Then, then being like, oh, God doesn't exist, I'm a humanist. Human optimization, human actualization, we can be gods, like the New Age people. We can be gods, we become gods. And then you're wrong. And God just, when you're judged, he's like, Oh, 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 you turned your back on me. Hell. Like the little demons that come out at the during the movie Ghost, the Patrick Swayze Ghost, remember that? Oh, those little demons come out of the alley, those little shadow people, and they drag them down. So, I don't know. I'd rather just hedge my bets. And I'm not saying I'm only a Christian because I'm out of fear i say that it's part of it, but I honestly do think that Jesus Christ was our Lord and Savior, and I think the Catholic Church is the, the, the true church, because it's the only church that's been around for 2,000 years. For 1,500 years before the Martin Luther came about, it was the Catholic Church. We can trace every priest in the world back to St. Peter, who was the first pope. No other church can say that. History vindicates the Catholic Church. And by all means, if you want to comment, please comment later on. But there was no other church that was around in 468 A.D., 1321 AD. I mean, it was only the Catholic Church. And and not just papal history vindicates that, but regular history vindicates that. We were the only church. And of course they'll say a Christian, the Christian church, like if you're in encyclopedias or Wikipedia, the Christian, the Christians live in the catacombs. No, it was the Catholics. Catholic means universal in Greek. So the the way they they got that term was is universal meant that you didn't have to be a Jew because in the early church, you know, all the apostles, Jesus, were Jews. And so they had this big debate early on of if you had to become Jewish before you could become Christian. And they settled that on the Council of Jerusalem where you had Paul and Peter and the rest of the, the apostles who were still alive at the time and their successors debating this. And they said, no, anybody can do it. It was universal. It was open to slaves. It was open to free men, Jews, Gentiles, everybody. So that's where the term comes from. This finishes my Catholic theology part two, because if you listen to the one podcast before this, you know, I kind of went off on that too. So going back, I'm sure some of you can relate to this, right? The lack of confidence. If you've lost your way, but even if you haven't lost your way, right, you lack confidence. Even though you might have the the light in your brain, the brightness in your brain better than somebody who's more popular or good-looking, being a vice weakens your resolve and weakens your, your thoughts and yourselves and yourself and your ability and your credentials. And I think that's what happened with me. You know, just because your body quickly changes doesn't mean your mind does. And in my mind, I was still the same old fat boy laden with insecurities and self-loathing that I had accumulated over 15 years. And I let those insecurities alter the course of my life and eventually break the heart of my parents. And today, I still regret that, and I still regret that I made those decisions. So, this ends confession number 16, the cancer hospital. So please, go to my website, Naturopathic Earth, read my articles. I have a lot of articles. I've written some on uh, fish, which fish have the most mercury. I'm doing one on uh, cleaning out your pantry and purging it of toxins and putting in, you know, kind of eat clean paleo foods. Eventually, I'm going to get my Naturopathic Earth podcast going. I've already recorded four or five podcasts. I just haven't found the music and to edit it all up. And my partner is much better with that. I did figure out how to interview people. Just be patient. So I'm I'm trying to do all my confessions up to number 19. And then we'll start interviewing people. So all of you guys who've listened to me since the prologue back in January, thank you so much. You know, I, I'm starting out slow the website, my followers on Twitter. It's going to take time. And I appreciate you guys. I know that many times I go off topic or you might not agree with what I'm saying or politics, but just be patient. It's going to get better once we start interviewing people and then, you know, my personality will really come out. But, you know, what did I learn from all this? Just because you're fat doesn't make you stupid. And I think... Being fat made me feel stupid and it made me choose things that I would not have chosen otherwise. So, until next time, God bless. Say your prayers. Try to eat clean. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Make sure to visit us at www.naturopathicearth.com for additional confessions, wellness articles, recipes, and a whole lot more. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. See you next time.